Our worries about teacher shortages and a lack of motivation for young professionals to seek a career in teaching is real and it's shared. In this leader chat, Jeff talks with Dr. Denise Spangler, Dean of the College of Education at the University of Georgia. She has led at UGA for many years, and her lens into this problem and the potential for future opportunities for change is something we should all pay attention to. Enjoy. Ladies, gentlemen, educators, leaders, how are you? My name is Jeff Rose. Welcome to Leader Chat today. And I wanna start with giving you a, a a small peek underneath the hood of our leader chats. So a reminder that if you are in the leadership circle, you are a member, then they have, our members have the option of watching this live. We also send them the video of this. If you are not in the leadership circle, or even if you are, and you prefer the podcast version, we do make this available on kind of a delayed manner, a couple of weeks after the leader chat actually happens, and we produce it via podcast, Leader Chat with Jeff Rose. Um, well, in terms of the content, we don't put out an advertisement and have people come to us. Quite the contrary, we actually um, go out and find them. So in the meantime, we have Chris Richard. You've probably heard of Chris. He has this deep, impressive, velvet kind of voice who usually welcomes our guests, always welcomes our guests on the podcast. He is our producer. He has set up this you know, incredible studio here at Cognia. And I focus on really the content and the conversation. I come sit down and we engage. Well, in, in this case, in terms, of, in terms of who we find, we just try to make sure that it's relevant. So we are constantly in tune with our members, issues and challenges that are happening in the world of educational leadership. And then we scan and we hunt and we invite. Well, in this case, we know that all over the country, small districts and large systems, public, private, et cetera, are challenged with a teacher um, workforce issue. And then of course, worried about what will come in the future. This was recently a conversation amongst our team in the leadership circle. And one of our team members, his name is Phil Lanou. Phil, um, he is here in Georgia. He was a superintendent, national superintendent of the year. And we we're in this conversation and Phil said, I think I know somebody who can talk to this issue. And so he said, Let, let's reach out. He mentioned this person and this connection happened. So we're gonna be inviting in this guest specific to a dilemma and a challenge who has some perspective and some expertise and almost a lens into this that I think everyone is gonna find really, really important and valuable. So ladies and gentlemen, I'm gonna be introducing you to Denise A. Spangler. And we're gonna be talking about the trends and the future of the teacher pipeline. Denise is a professor in elementary education, professor in mathematics education, and dean of the Mary Francis Early College of Education at the University of Georgia. Dr. Spangler is an award-winning teacher, a member of the UGA Teaching Academy, and a recipient of the Richard B. Russell Award for Excellence in Undergraduate Teaching. 
She has served and has chaired on a number of committees and task forces at UGA, and she was an elected member of the Clark County District Board of Education for 12 years, serving as two terms as a vice uh, president of the board. So that either makes her extremely uh, noble um, and focused on servitude, maybe a bit crazy, or maybe a little bit of both. That's that's a joke. Um, we really support you, board members. We just know that that's a, uh, a challenging, sometimes tricky job to hold, and she did it for 12 years. Um, so, and by the way, I want to say something about UGA. I live in Georgia. This topic is not a Georgia topic. However, um, you know, University of Georgia is actually a really, it's a big deal around here. And not only, of course, are we number one in football currently, but it is an impressive college that is um, is just really esteemed and challenging to, to get into and so forth. My daughter goes to UGA, so I'm definitely biased uh, now. And I live, you know, fairly close to Athens, Georgia, which is a really, really cool city to visit and wonderful place, of, of course, for Denise to work. So without further ado, let me welcome Denise uh, to our screen. Denise, how are you? I read your bio, but I miss things. So, you know, welcome and and tell tell us what we missed. I mean, I I didn't even go after the years of tenure you've been there. So that's just a bio. So tell us more about yourself. I'm one of those people who always wanted to be a teacher from the time I was little. My mom has a picture of me when I was about four in front of the chalkboard, you know, doing the alphabet. Um, so I started my career as an elementary school teacher, and I was always fascinated by how kids learn math and why it's hard for some kids. And so my career path after I left the classroom has largely been in mathematics education with elementary school students, trying to figure out how to help teachers learn to teach math to kids so they don't grow up hating math. Okay, so that was your, your entree. Um, but your your career, not but, but and your career um, has really transitioned over, you know, past decades, right? So talk to us about how you went from elementary teacher to what you're doing now, you know, dean at UGA. I mean, what what has that path been like? In addition to always wanting to be a teacher, I have always been one of those people who's a national leader. Every committee I'm on, I end up chairing. I end up being the person who takes the notes and makes sure everybody follows up. So I eventually became department chair, associate dean, senior associate dean, and then dean. Um, and a lot of that has been about widening my sphere of influence from the 30 students in my fifth grade classroom to teaching 100 pre-service teachers a year to working with 25 faculty who teach students, to now being dean with over 200 faculty and 4,000 students, and being able to collaborate with my fellow deans around the country. So to kind of establish then, uh, because so you have a lens and a perspective into the topic we'll get deeper into here that many wouldn't. Right, so um, let's let's assume that if you're a, a principal, a superintendent, associate superintendent, whatever your title is on the district side, um, you have the perspective of the, the the challenge of 
kind of which teachers are available during good times when there are a hundred teachers applying for one position, then you have this great dilemma to have, which is, you know, competition. And when you are at a time like this, where maybe you have spots and yet the well seems somewhat dry, that's all you know. You have a different perspective because over time, you've been working with this pipeline of people interested, maybe drawn to like the why of teaching and learning similar to yours when you were a young child on the chalkboard. So what have you noticed in terms of this dilemma and this challenge that our leaders are currently grappling with? Certainly, as long as I've been in teacher education, we've been struggling to fill certain kinds of positions, secondary math, science, uh, world language education, TESOL, special education. But now we're struggling to fill all of our seats in elementary education. We used to admit 75 elementary education majors a semester, and we would have another 75 on the waiting list. Now we're struggling to fill two cohorts of 25 students to get 50 students in the program. So that's definitely changing. Um, you know, we hear all of the same things that leaders hear about it. The conditions of teaching, salaries, the fact that teachers now need to be counselors, nurses, uh, parents in absentia, all of the things that children are bringing to school with them these days that teachers need to be part of supporting in addition to the academics. Um, you know, there's certainly a narrative out there that there isn't a teacher shortage. There's a shortage of people willing to work under the conditions that we're asking teachers to work in these days. But what I see from the pipeline perspective is we don't have enough people in the pipeline to fill the vacancies that we have now or the ones that we will continue to have as the baby boomers retire. So that narrative you just described, um, you know, that is, it's a spin on why people aren't raising their hand or leaning in to the potential of one day becoming a teacher. Right. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it, it just describes these conditions that maybe aren't attractive. Based upon, now that's a narrative. What, what do you think may be accurate or what do you think maybe is not accurate relative to that narrative? Because I, I think in education, we often have a narrative problem. People talk about education or what occurs in the classroom without maybe knowing. So from your perspective, what do you think may be accurate and what's, what's, what, what's false about the narrative that's out there? I think the salary piece is both true and false. When I ask our students, why are you going into teaching? It's a deep-seated passion for wanting to shape the future. They want to help children. They want to be part of a community and a school that is supporting children. Salary doesn't usually come into play. Would we all like teachers to have higher salaries? Absolutely. But I don't think that's the deal breaker for most people. I think what is real is that there is a narrative out there. I actually hear current teachers say, I would not want one of my own children to become a teacher. 
I talk to students who say, my parents don't want me to be a teacher, or I want to change my major and be a teacher, but I'm afraid to tell my parents. So I think there is a narrative about the teaching profession, what schools are like today. Certainly school safety plays into it. Um, mass shootings, what parent would want their child to be a teacher in a situation like that. So I think there are some truths and I think there are some other things that are less valid. Um, so I've had some leader chats uh, last year that were starting to touch on this issue. So we looked at this kind of from the union side um, the and um, also from kind of the, the more administrative side that was more of a pragmatic dilemma. And, you know, money is sometimes a discussion, as you know, um, that, you know, if, if we pay teachers more, that it may be more attractive. Now, the dilemma is, right, the, having the infrastructure, the national, the local infrastructure to be able to produce a significant change in, uh, in teacher pay is, is really difficult because, number one, how could that ever happen? I mean, financially, that may, may sound good, but it may not be possible. In the meantime, you have states and districts sometimes try to increase, right? So we have states that have given these, you know, kind of bonuses to teachers, which is, which is great. Or maybe it keeps them in the seat one more year, you know, so they retire one year uh, later or that teacher is there the third year and we want to keep them. Maybe it keeps them in their seat and focused one more year. But I still have a hard time thinking that that is the solution. Um, it seems like there are these, just these other factors. To your original point, I became a teacher not because of the salary. I didn't even think of the salary. I was thinking about what I wanted to do with my life. And I, and I heard you say the same thing. Do you, do you think money is really the solution or maybe just walk us through what you're hearing at, you know, with, 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 with student teachers at this time? I think money is less the issue in terms of putting money in teachers' pockets. I mean, obviously teachers spend a lot of their own money on outfitting their classrooms and, you know, buying a winter coat for a child who needs one and those kinds of things. But I think it's, also partly how districts invest money and how they structure the school day. Um, you know, when we look at other countries, teachers have more time to plan. I hear from teachers all the time that my planning time vanished. I had a student support team meeting. I had an IEP meeting. We had to fill out this checklist or there was some other thing I had to do during my planning time. So I'm planning at night and on the weekends and my whole life is consumed with this. You know, there are other countries in the world where teachers teach four hours a day and the rest of the time is individual and collaborative planning. Teaching can be a really lonely profession. You go in your classroom and you close the door and it's you and those 25 to 40 students for however long you have them, whether it's an elementary teacher all day or a high school teacher for 50 or 75 or 90 minutes. Um, there are other countries where teachers do do more collaborative, intellectual work together. Um, I just, I hear a lot of people saying that the teaching profession isn't as satisfying as they want it to be. They feel like their teaching standards 
for a test, they're filling out forms, they're dealing with discipline. It isn't what they wanted to go into teaching for. So um, I'm, I'm really excited to have you bring up those topics because um, when it is maybe just a financial then you get into this concept of, you know, the serenity prayer. There's all these things that a leader can't control. But your list that you just gave does provide an entree for leaders to start thinking about what can I control specific to the conditions of what the job of teaching is like. And I, I can't imagine a leader thinking, well, I don't, I don't need to pay attention to those things. They, they know they do. Why do you think we have such a difficult time uh, in our country aligning some of those job conditions to what we know works in other places? And I'm not talking about comparing our test scores from one country to the next. I'm talking about the conditions and respect, levels of collaboration that teachers experience in their day-to-day. -day. What do you think is structurally challenging for us to kind of turn that corner? Part of it, I think, is inertia. Part of it is the solution flies directly in the face of what we're facing right now of not enough people. If you want to let a teacher teach for four hours a day and have some more collaborative planning time, you need more adults in that building to work with children while those teachers are engaged in collaborative planning. And we're talking about the shortage of qualified adults in those buildings to do that. There's also a shortage of funding. Um, you know, different states fund education differently, but a lot of it's based on real estate taxes, which means the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, and it just replicates the existing system. I mean, I think fundamentally we need to find another funding model for schools that isn't based strictly on real estate taxes. Um, that that will help level. The playing field you know the rich districts can afford to pay a signing bonus they can afford to pay teachers beyond those that are funded by the state administrators counselors nurses psychologists um, the smaller districts with smaller real estate bases can't do that so we're dealing with a shortage of qualified adults to create a structure in the school day i think it also expands beyond schools we don't have an abundance of safe spaces to send students if they weren't in school all day, if they needed daycare and after school care. Uh, we have a lot of parents who are working two jobs. They, we can't have children at home alone after school. I think we've got some larger societal issues. Uh, wasn't it uh, Jonathan Kozel wrote Savage Inequalities? It's probably a book that um, you read, I know I did many, many years ago, right? I mean, where he really a uncovered long a long time ago. Um, and I remember asking myself and others, professors I had at the time, why is this the case? Why, how can this continue to be? And uh, it was then, and this is a long time ago, I had one professor say, politics. That was his answer, right? And then over time, I thought, you know, it's true. I mean, it is true. It's really hard for us to kind of break through that political ceiling. Um, and this is not a, a right or a left conversation. It's just the fact is politics create an incredible barrier 
for us to be able to do things dramatically differently, which as you described it really someday, I would hope they could be soon, but I'm not so sure could happen because everything you described in terms of those inequalities are as accurate as can be. Well, and education's a public good, public education's a public good, which means the government has to be involved. But when we run on four-year cycles of changing curriculum standards and changing budgets and changing policies, because the next legislator, the next governor, the next state superintendent has been elected, I think that's part of what leads teachers to say, let me just duck and cover, this administration will go away and things will come back. Um, I think there's a lack of trust among teachers in all these people who are making decisions about how we do our jobs without getting political. The divisive concept bills that have proliferated all over the country are a really good example of that. Yeah, for sure. Now, um, let's, let's t I have a question about data. So we, we are talking about the teacher shortage, the current and future pipeline issue. You've even experienced or described what you're experiencing in terms of numbers at University of Georgia. What, what do we know specific to the national data on the topic looking out five, 10 years? Oh gosh, I can't quote those data. Oh, I, by the way, the I can't either. I can't either. The only reason I ask it is um, I, I get conflicting reports at times. I don't know if you do as well, where oh, yeah. it's, it's very clear, someone will say, that based upon these things, not only is this a, a problem now, but almost get ready, bat down the mm -hmm. hatches, because it will continue to be. And then I will hear an argument that will say, listen, we don't have a quality um, net national database on this topic. So really, maybe it's more of an issue that we think we're experiencing and assuming and not truly knowing. So I get conflicting reports based on what I see, and maybe you get the same. Well, it's just like the, the rate at which teachers leave the profession in the first five years, you'll see numbers as low as 15 or 20% and as high as 50%. And I'm sure that there are places that have both of those, but we don't hear a good national number. I mean, one third is the commonly quoted number, a third of all teachers leave the profession in the first five years, which I see as a huge problem. We're investing a lot in them at the college level. Districts are investing in them when they hire them. And to have teachers leave within five years, that's an incredible drain on resources. Um, but we certainly hear the national statistics about the baby boomer generation retiring. The generations that come after that generation are very different in terms of their career patterns. You know, one of my grandfathers worked for General Electric for his entire career. The other one worked for the U.S. Postal Service for the entire career. I've jumped around from being an elementary teacher to being in higher ed, but students today's generation, they'll change jobs seven or eight times in their career and not just change school districts, but change from being a teacher to being a real estate agent to deciding to become an esthetician. And so I think we get those things factoring in coupled with the growth in the student population in this country, at least in various parts of this country. I think we do have a challenge ahead. Okay, so let's let's spend some time and uh, lean into then solutions. So let's let's start by just by having fun and asking if 
it can be as unrealistic as you'd like it to be. If you had a magic wand, right? What do you think maybe some of the key elements you'd focus in on? I mean, if you truly could wave a wand and make it happen to turn a corner relative to this problem quickly, what, what would you do with your wand? If I had a magic wand, I would put more professionals in schools who are prepared to help care for students' mental health and physical health, which would take a lot off of teachers and allow teachers to teach the content that they're prepared to teach. It would create healthier students because we have skilled mental health professionals and medical professionals who can address the other things that are happening in children's lives. Um, I would throw social workers in there that can help families that can't afford nutritious food, can't afford transportation, um, don't have heat in the winter. I, I would make schools community hubs where families can come to get all of the kinds of support that right now they either don't know exist or they would have to go to multiple places and with transportation challenges and time challenges, they can't get to all of those places. I would bundle all those folks and put them in schools. And I think that would change the job of a teacher and it would change life for students. So that was fun, right? We got to just dream for a minute. Now, if we drag ourselves back to reality. Um, what, yeah, I know. I'm sorry about that. I'm like <laughs> cold, cold bucket of water, right? On this situation. So you can't give me a magic wand and then take it away. Well, I, I, and I know I, I just did that, right? But I, I apologize. <laughs> so put your wand just back in your pocket and maybe we'll bring it out later. So here's then, what have you seen um, occur kind of realistic scenarios that either districts or areas are doing that seems to be helping? Or have there been any specific strategies that have created some kind of promise in this current environment? One of the things that has shown promise is instead of recruiting 18-year-old undergraduates to be teachers, to recruit people either into certification-only programs, some of which are university-based and some of which are not, going after career changers, people who've been in the military, people who've been in business, who decide that whatever they've been doing just doesn't, doesn't touch their heart and they wanna do something that makes a difference. We've seen some examples of good quality, reasonably fast-track ways to help people transition into a teaching career. What we know about those people is they're generally more diverse, they are older, more mature, and they've made a, a fully informed decision about what they're doing, and so they tend to stay in teaching longer. I think that has a lot of promise. So we have um, yeah, um, um, immense, or, our membership, our leaders. We've, uh, we've had leader um, discussions on this. We call them think tanks. Um, we, we do these things called solution circles, and we've had many of them on this very issue. What I notice um, in our leaders is that they are coming up with some really interesting and creative ways on handling the current challenge or crisis, however you describe it, the current. Um, what I worry about 
is a leader's capacity, not ability, but just capacity because of the challenges of their jobs, to um, come up from underneath the water and look to the horizon and try to be innovative and think about um, some solutions that maybe we've never considered. So let's just pretend for a moment that we're unable over the next five, 10 years to impact the numbers of teachers. If we can't get more teachers, more people to raise their hand wanting to enter the, to the teacher workforce, so all of those efforts are futile and they don't work out, do you ever spend time thinking about or wondering about a new model on how with a limited number of quality, dedicated teachers, we could maybe do education a bit differently in order to serve the very complex and major needs of our students? I mean, I, I also wanna create the space where leaders can start thinking about, okay, if that doesn't get solved, rather than be a victim, what can I do to maybe change the game on how do we support our children? Obviously, if I had that answer, yeah, of I'd course. write a book and make a bunch of money of and course. everything would be better. Um, you know, so many of the things that we think about as solutions put us in this tension of we need more teachers to be able to do these things. So one of the things I've seen out there as advanced as an idea is to have highly qualified, capable teachers delivering, I don't like that word, instruction to a larger group of students and then have additional people who are perhaps less well-trained who can facilitate small group activities that that qualified teacher has designed and has prepared these individuals to do and is still overseeing. It's somewhat the Parapro model, but it's potentially a way to bring other people in the school district including some who maybe don't currently have full-time jobs, folks in transportation, uh, food service, office workers. Many of those people come from the communities of the children we're serving. They have a bond with the students in a way that can be useful, pulling them into the classroom to work with, with students in some way, um, pulling community volunteers in, parents, um, pulling some of those things that are extracurricular into the school day. So robotics is really popular now. You get business people and engineers who volunteer to do robotics after school and on Saturdays. We'll pull some of that into the school day, take some of that pressure off of teachers. Don't make that extracurricular thing just for the kids who can afford it or who you know, have that opportunity because they're not needed to go home and help with younger siblings or something. Well, the do you remember when was when did we first start talking about the the flipped classroom? What is this? Fifteen years ago? Decade, fifteen, yeah, yeah something. Yeah. Okay, so I remember the the flipped classroom coming out as an innovation. The for those that are listener listening that maybe not know what that is or you're too young to know when that came out, the concept was that the direct instruction would be provided for students rather than being in class when they're out of class. Right, so it was a, uh, a a recorded version of the direct instruction. So students would watch video at home to get um, what a teacher would sometimes do in front of the class. 
then the class time was more focused on intervention and support based upon a student's ability or challenges with the content that they had received. So that's my basic description of a flipped classroom. Well, in what I hear, this model that you're talking about, I've, I've, I've listened to it being kicked around recently, and I think that that may potentially have merit, that if in fact you have fewer but extremely talented teachers, how do we get them in front of more students to provide instruction and then think about a model on how we provide individual or small group support, to your point, using the people that we have? Um, when we start thinking creatively like that, I know there's a lot of nuance and details that have to go into such a problem-solving activity. What do you think keeps us back from leaning into those things now? Do you think it's just the, the, the challenges of what's being faced currently, so people are just working tirelessly, just trying to get through the day and the week and the year that kind of keeps us back from being creative like that? Um, because I, I don't think many districts, I know not many districts, are actually leaning into, um, you know, taking a swing at, at that bat, if that makes sense. Well, and I think there's plenty of reasons to have some healthy skepticism about that model. I mean, mm -hmm. what you described as a flipped classroom, where you need the teacher who knows student thinking and knows the content is when they're doing all that interactive stuff and they're grappling with the content and they run into those challenging things. That's where you need to know the math. You need to know what students typically have as misconceptions about the decimal point. That's not what a para-pro or a school nurse or a custodian is likely to bring to the table. So there's plenty of reasons to be skeptical about that model. You know, our schools were built for one teacher with 25 or 30 students in a room. So how do we get a teacher in front of more students? We use the gym, we use the cafeteria, we use some sort of video link. Certainly in rural districts, you might actually need to go across school buildings. Um, I think we hold on to this idea that we want a highly qualified teacher in every classroom. We want every student always to be in touch with a highly qualified teacher. And I think getting past that ideal and figuring out how do we do something that is good, that maybe we can make better over time, given our current circumstances, is hard, especially as you say, leaders are trying to deal with all kinds of things right now. I mean, we all have transportation shortages, kids aren't getting to school on time. Teachers are having to reteach things that kids missed because the bus didn't get there till 30 minutes later because they, a driver had to run a double route. Um, I, think, I think there is just a lot going on in schools and on leaders' plates right now to have the space to think creatively. We've got a lot of um, rules and policies and accountability at the district and the state level about what is and isn't allowed. Certainly some of those are very valid. Special education policies and laws need to be followed. Um, but it's hard to break out of those things that we've been doing that we believe best meet students' needs. Parents have expectations about what we're doing. Teachers have expectations about what they'll be doing. I'm pretty sure school nurses didn't think they'd be teaching geometry. Yeah, I, I agree. And I want to make a disclaimer to not, not just to you, Denise, but also to our listeners that, trust me, I'm not proposing what I described is the solution. Because as you described, there's so many complexities to be able to changing the system. Because in fact, we, if we had a magic wand, 
we would want ample teachers, ample, very qualified teachers who are respected, uh, resourced, working with our children. Our children are right there. Our, our number one priority, as we say, and I believe we truly believe that. It's just uh, we're in a difficult time on knowing how to truly support them systemically. So here's, uh, here will be my kind of final question that I ask really all of our guests, because I, I remind that providing content to leaders, teachers, even students, um, isn't, isn't our goal. Our goal is in the leadership circle is to create discourse, leaders helping leaders. So if we were to imagine you and I are sitting um, in, in a round table with other leaders in a discussion, what would be kind of your elevator speech, pragmatic uh, advice for them right now on this topic? I am going to go to the induction piece and how we keep new teachers from leaving the field. There is a long-standing practice of assigning new teachers the most challenging situations in which to teach. I'll use high school math in his example because that's something I know well. The most experienced teacher has earned the right to teach AP Calculus or AP Stat or Pre-Calc, and the new teacher gets Algebra 1 support. Not that a brand new teacher is ready to teach AP Calculus either, but we've got to stop giving new teachers the most challenging academic situations and behavior situations. Because in addition to all of the things that a new teacher struggles with to begin with, when we put them in the most challenging situations, often without a lot of mentoring support, we are, I think, pushing them toward the door even faster. I think we've got to find a better way to welcome teachers into the profession. Much appreciated. Solid point. Do you miss being a school board member? Not most of the time. <laughs> when I miss it is when I hear people talking about something that they read in the newspaper or they saw online somewhere. I know there's more to the story and I don't know that more to the story anymore. Right. Obviously, when I was a school board member, I knew things that I couldn't share but I often had a context that I could share to help people understand. And I can't do that anymore other than to say, I know that there's more to this story. We need to trust our school board members and our superintendent. Yeah. Well so I said. miss that. I met a lot of great people. It's, it made me a better taxpayer, a better citizen, a better teacher educator to understand the complexity of a school district. Yeah, well, well said. Denise, thank you so much. This is this is really what I was hoping for. And your your perspective is so important for us to hear, which is exactly why Phil said, I know somebody you need to talk to. So I'll thank Phil, but most importantly, I want to thank you for your time. Much appreciated. It was my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation All to right, you De and to Phil. All right, Denise, be well. Ladies and gentlemen. Um, that that was interesting and and fun and um, challenging. I I mean to Denise's point, if if we knew the answer, right, the book would be written and someone would be uh, doing extremely well. This is is complex and it's nuanced and it's political, um, but it should not be ignored. 
And I hope over time, leaders um, can find the space and capacity to start thinking, not just critically, but creatively. Um, and this is just a kind of a start to the discussion and Denise really helped us with that. So ladies and gentlemen, I wanna thank you teachers who may be listening to this, educational leaders, just know that um, your work is really, really important. Thank you for everything you do to support students, schools, and communities. Everything you're doing is noble. Be well.